Hello, hello. Welcome to our Job the Stamp podcast. If it is your first time tuning in, welcome. And if you've been following the gang for a while, welcome back, my friend. This podcast showcases talented young scientists from different parts of the world who, with their undeniable passion for science, dedicated mindset, diligent work, and exceptional achievements in the STEM fields, are making a lasting impact today for a brighter tomorrow. We also infuse science with the humane aspect of it, showcasing the person beyond the project board. The guests are ISAF, USIS, SIUS, RSI, and ITEM alumni. You can discover more about that on www.dropthestand.com, linked in our bio. If you enjoy listening for the episode and think this is worth tuning into, feel free to share it with others tagging the pod because we love seeing some supportive queens and kings. And now, let's jump right into the episode and discover who is gonna be dropping the stand today. Happy New Year! We were through a lot in 2020, with to say at least some unprecedented challenges and hardships, but I genuinely hope that the pod inspired you to keep pushing through, taking on new adventures, no matter how dark the night may be. I hope this year will be way brighter and that your aspirations will come true. This episode, people marks the first one in 2021. It's a new year, but the guests are still dropping the stem. So did Rahil Samlal in this episode, researcher in microbiology and an undergraduate student at the University of Pretoria studying microbiology and genetics. As the winner of the ESCOM ASPO for Young Scientists, while receiving the University of Stellenbosch Bursary for Top Creative Project and the University of Pretoria Dr. Derek Gray Award, he was a finalist at Intelisef 2018, a participant at SIAS, known as the Stockholm International Youth Science Seminar 2018, attending the Nobel Prize Week and Ceremony. His research focused on using biotechnology to develop cheaper and novel technologies to help find lower quality of living in Africa and the rest of the world. He also investigated an alternative treatment protocol for commonly occurring pathogenic bacteria. Currently, Rahil is part of Synthetics as ambassador of South Africa since he enjoys reviewing biotechnology's dynamic field with the rigorous input of ethical and philosophical discussions. His passion is to bring science education to the general public, and it's not his first time grabbing the mic, since Rahil is also the co-host of the Dialogue podcast. Let's get into our conversation. Hi, Rahil. It's real nice to have you on the podcast. We have a bit of history due to science, and I'm so excited to present you to the world who you are as a scientist and also getting to know a little bit about your background. So welcome. Hi, Blanca. Thank you so much. It's such an honor to be on the podcast here today. And yeah, I'm really excited to get into it. With films, you know, sometimes you show the protagonist growing up, which just provides a setting to the entirety of the story. So we're going to do the same on the podcast episode today. That's why I'm really interested to get to know from you. Do you remember your first encounter with science, that initial moment when perhaps you had the idea, this is such a cool thing and I should dive deep into it more? So my, I'd say... I can't pinpoint anything too specific because I think it was very early on. Um, I've always been a curious child. I think I share that with all children. But in preschool, I remember I was always asking questions to the teachers and to the adults and to the parents. And very often they get very annoyed because I, I do feel like I they maybe thought I spoke too much. Um, but I was just always unsatisfied with the answers they gave me. I just wanted to know more and more and more. And at the time, I, I didn't really understand what it was I wanted to know. But today, I think it might have been just like the underlying principles of why the things around me are the way that they are. So more about the natural world. And that was my first general encounter with, with scientific questioning. I, if, we, if we look later on, I think in high school, I remember when I was introduced to science as a formal subject, um, what drew me really close to those kinds of topics was the very impactful nature of them. And I think even at that age, I understood, okay, this, this is something where 
I can express my passion and there are so many different fields, I'll definitely find something that I can fit into and enjoy. And what finally solidified my interest into STEM were the amazing teachers that I had um, who were all scientists and who weren't afraid to show us and tell us to explore. And they were really there to support us. So that was the general encounter at first. That is so inspiring to hear. And you've expanded on how somehow we can have cloudy ideas of our desires or just naturally about our interests, but those can crystallize as we grow up and mature and mold into the person we are today. Curiosity is also an integral part of that childlike whimsy. You've mentioned teachers. So do you remember a specific teacher who you said yes. could be a scientist who had an impactful legacy passed on to you as you grew up? Yeah, so it was my mathematics teacher. So this was the same teacher all throughout my high schooling. Um, it was my biology teacher, physics teacher, and my mathematics teacher. And all of, they, all of them, they were very involved in things outside of school. And they would really encourage us to get involved with them as well. So science fairs and um, maths olympiads and all of that extra things that can't necessarily be um, found in the classroom and that being communicated through them, that's what showed me the wondrous world of science because you can't really experience science if you're just studying it in a very um, isolated sort of stationary setting. And it's because they were very dynamic with their teaching that, that I think a lot, myself and a lot of my peers were able to go into STEM with, with a very clear outlook. Absolutely. Today's scientist doesn't live in a vacuum or on an isolated island, so you have to get out into the real world. And how great to hear that your teachers did not only provide the essential emotional support, but also practical help and just directed your attention towards science fairs and expos where you can live out your creativity in an academically solidified way. Before jumping right into the expo world, family can be your strongest ally, a steady rock in your life. How has your family helped you in becoming the scientist you are today? So thank you for this question, because I think my family needs that recognition from me. And my family, which would be my siblings and my parents, have really been there for, been there for me since the beginning. So they've been my rock since day one, helping me figure out everything teaching each other along the way. And they were my first supporters, my first audience, my first judges. And I remember before I, I go into any expo, any public talk or presentation, I would always seek advice from my family because they're all learned in different things. And most of the time, this would be to my mother, who's a businesswoman and a nurse. And she owns an ambulance, um, an emergency care ambulance service. So she's very knowledgeable in so many aspects of emergency healthcare and public healthcare and the effects that that can have in so many people that are vulnerable. So you might see a lot of adults today, even in the medical field, who are very apprehensive to talk about politics and medicine and the government and how all of these things are related. But my mother has never stopped having those conversations with me. So she really encourages me and pushes me forward to be a better scientist by allowing me to ask questions that perhaps other people are too afraid to ask. And as for my dad and my siblings, they, they often give me advice in other sectors of science with stuff that they are learned on, um, topics like how science impacts laws and politics and international relations. And this what this allows me to do is have a very wholesome approach in studying science and exploring it that I would not have gotten if I was just isolated and only studying science. So my family was really integral um, as a support system, I'm really grateful for them because I'm able to be a better equipped person overall because of them. How beautifully put. And I suppose your mother's medical real life experience helped you tremendously when you were working on your microbiological project, but also investigating or looking at a project from a legal perspective can help you in the public policy part, especially when it comes to synthetic biology. So you get the best of both worlds, essentially. Yes, exactly. Could you tell us more about your National Science Fair slash Expo journey? Because I think you call it an expo in South Africa. How does that work on that continent? Because I believe you are also the first African participant. Yes, so... 
in South Africa, we've got, um, if you are a science student, so you like from grade nine, you get to choose your subjects that you do. Um, and if you choose science as one of your subjects, or if you, you know, you can choose physics and biology or either one, then you would have to participate in the science fair where you get to showcase the scientific method and perhaps discover a new project. And then you would do this for a mark um, with your report card for the subject. And for me, that whole journey starts when I was quite young. This was in 2013, I would say when I was in grade seven, I would say it was a bad science project. Um, if I'm looking at it objectively, because it was my very first one that I had to present. Um, I do remember though winning a bronze at the science fair that year, and this was at school. So this wasn't like, um, it was isolated to the school um, walls. It wasn't really out there yet. And I told myself that I would keep getting better at the school science fair. And I kept on getting bronze and silver. And I was always just aiming for gold for some reason, because, you know, that's sort of what I thought I had to do. But I recently realized that if I was just chasing the gold medal, um, and, you know, what if I never got it for so long, I might have stopped doing the expo entirely. And that would be for the wrong reasons. So I'm glad that I looked, um, took it more as an experience. So after we do the school science fairs, we would go to the national science fair. So that would be different. All the students who, who are chosen from school, they would be representing their districts um, locally. And then from there, a very select few students get to go to the international science fair, which is held in Johannesburg here in South Africa. And that's the largest um, science fair in Africa. And it's hosted by ESCOM Expo. So that's why we call them Expo. We can call them Expo or Science Fair, but we usually refer to them as an Expo because of ESCOM Expo. And I remember in 2017, I was chosen to um, bring my project to the International Science Fair. And this is where other countries from Africa and from Asia, Europe, and North America, South America can come and actually showcase their projects in South Africa as well. So that was, an, that was my very first um, feeling or experience into some sort of international fair. And what I want to point out is that it took me a really long time to get to grips with getting there, um, managing my time for research and for schooling. It, it, it's not simply just doing a project and then getting a good mark. It's all about that preservation. It's all about passing the interviews. And you have to constantly ask yourself, am I ready to do this? Am I ready to devote X amount of time to, to present my project to these very learned individuals and, and explain to them what this thing is that I'm discovering. And I had to fail very often for the expo. And that's an integral part about the expo. You have to fail because that's really the only way you'll learn and the only way that you'll get that extra experience and knowledge to go. And as, you, as I've mentioned before, the ESCOM Expo has been so life-changing for me. It's what got me my bursary to university. Um, it's what got me to Sweden to participate at SICE, and it's what took me to Intel ISEF in the USA. So that sums up basically, I guess, my expo journey. What an exciting adventure or journey you've had. And I also want to refer to what you said in the beginning, that you started out presenting your projects on little stages. I once heard from a good friend of mine that if you want to have an impact on anyone, start by drawing a circle around you and act in that sphere. So we cannot aim for unrealistic goals if we are not acting today, putting those ideas into practice and what we want to achieve in our life. And also a very interesting point I wanted to raise is that you said you were a bit fixated on getting the gold medal, a bit of a maximalist outlook. And when it comes to research projects, we can aim for that 100% efficiency, maximalism, which can be a good yeah. thing. <laughs> but when you are solely fixating on perfection, you might miss important parts of your project. You know, change some details that would essentially lead you closer and quicker to your desired results. So I like that you brought it up because there is that essential component of failure that we cannot miss out on. I like that you mentioned that just as a final point from doing expos and having so much experience with them, I think it's better to start early and never rush the project because if you rush the project, you're going to be very, um, you're going to be enticed to sort of put it in a way that it seems like you've been working on it for a long time. Then you have to go back and um, um, report to your own ethical code. You know, you don't want to give a misrepresentation of the timeline of what's possible within within a set frame. So 
it, it takes a long time and, and it takes a lot of work and a lot of time it can be boring tasks, but it's, it's all part of the entire experience and it's not necessarily about an end goal or the, just, or the destination. I think it's just all about how you feel about exploring science in the moment. And that's why I like it as a, as a separate subject to any other subject you would be doing at high school because um, these students are, are exposed to these new concepts for the first time. And when they have discuss discussions around it, they take so much from that and it's, it's absolutely invaluable. It is so true that you have to discover several perspectives, and even when we are talking about child development psychology, you have to focus on the journey, learning and studying while playing, because children are much more receptive from a theoretical and sensory perspective to absorb new information like a sponge. It really is more about the journey rather than yes. the destination itself, as cheesy as it sounds. It's true, yeah. Before heading to international waters, so to speak, you also won the top creative project title, and creativity can be quite a difficult concept to grasp. Of course, it can depend on several personality factors or intellectual stimuli, but has creativity been in your personal life something innate in you or developed throughout the years as you were exposed to many different new things? That's a great question. Um, I just want to go back to the question prompt uh, about the top creative project title. So this was, um, just to give a little bit of backstory, this is an award I won at the International Science Fair from Stellenbosch University. So they were the ones who gave out a monetary prize um, for this award. And they told us that the recipients are students who perhaps maybe presented ideas, which challenged the conventional way of thinking and using novel approaches to solve problems. And then they said, explained it in a creative way. And even now I'm like, what does that mean? What does the creative way mean? Um, it, it, as you said, it's a difficult concept to grasp if we look at the, how, you know, where to, where can we look at it from? And your question about creativity, that really makes me think about a lot of things related to the intersectionality of science and art and the, the artistic sciences, if I can say. And when I was younger, asking, asking questions, I wasn't very afraid to ask questions because I had known so much less at the time. Um, I knew I wasn't going to be judged based on how much I knew because I didn't know that much. So when I asked the question, it was purely for the wonderment of getting an answer or discovering that there might not be an answer and then discussing why. And that's so so when I was younger, I think that was the innate curiosity in me. And it's it was in everyone. And that link can be sort of evolutionary if we think about it in that way. But I felt like that faded away or kind of just took, you know, sat in the back seat um, as I got to high school, as I got older. I, I was always told that a scientist could never be a creative person and that scientists should simply follow the scientific method and then publish the results. And I don't think that that's entirely true because I even felt as recently as this year, I needed to challenge channel creativity and curiosity because those opportunities do become less and less apparent to us as we grow older. Perhaps we, we push away the idea of um, looking at things in a childish way with a childish wonderment of things. And I really wish we could normalize that, telling people to look at things in the same way a child would look at it. You've, you've got, you don't have these preconceived notions. You don't have this prior knowledge. How do you then for the first time be wondered by, by what you see around you? And um, we can definitely do that as adults, but I think that's a great thing that you brought up that I'm definitely going to be thinking about. It's really interesting what you've expanded upon because there has been a study that showed that we have around 70% of creativity, meaning its intensity, at the age of five, and that is decreased to 40% at the age of nine, and it decreases exponentially as we reach the age of 16, 17, especially due to the factors you mentioned. Because we are also bombarded with information that is packed with untrue information that scientists cannot be creative people. But when we think about, about yeah. even analyzing data, someone working in the analytical field can also use creativity because you didn't just put out an Excel sheet of, I don't know, with 
thousand numbers, but you have to connect the dots between them and present it in a way that is understandable, that is graspable. You need to have creativity to visually represent the material in a desirable and engaging way. Even when we're thinking about seemingly objective subjects, we can still find elements of creativity within that field. I, I really like that you mentioned that those topics specifically because, yes, of course, I think at face value, we might think it's a very analytical thing and it has to be rigid. But if we think about it at its core, it's all about the human mind and problem solving. And in order to problem solve, you have to be creative because people who are more creative and are more open to explore different ideas or look at things differently and are willing to accept different things, they are better problem solvers. And as you mentioned, you have to find the data and it's like, okay, I have this abstract data. How do I present it in a very tangible way? It's a problem solving, um, pro it's a problem solving issue. And then you have to use creativity uh, to, to put that, put those pieces together. And I think scientists or analytical thinkers or any academic for that matter, they might, they use this creativity and they might not even know it, that they are using it because it's just not in the way that they've been taught. Need to have an aha moment of sudden realization. <laughs> yeah. It's also about a positively rebellious spirit, uh, of course, within certain boundaries, but I think that science can open doors to explore that. Back to your expo journey, what kind of opportunities has the expo presented you with? Um, there's been numerous ones, but just to summarize and maybe um, put it all together, as I mentioned before, the ESCOM Expo allowed me to travel overseas to the USA and to Sweden and meet so many incredibly talented young scientists whom I'm still in contact with today, you being one of them, um, and, and being, being able to uh, be in contact with them and be part of their projects and the experiences that I had while traveling with Expo or teaching with Expo workshops or um, being a volunteer judge for the International Science Expo like I was this year. It's, it's all opportunities that are sort of ancillary. You don't really see it up front. And a lot of people just think you do the project and then you present it and you go to the award ceremony. But in between, there's so many different things happening. You're really, you, you, you get to explore your creativity with other people. You get to have these discussions. You get to see why you are perhaps wrong. And I think that's such an important thing for young people to go through because they might grow up into adults who can never accept that they're wrong. Um, and mm. it's, it's really, it's the expo provides so many, so many opportunities without making the sound like an advertisement. I genuinely, genuinely feel like the ESCOM expo for young scientists has done so much for the science community and pushing science to young people in a very, very wholesome way, in a very beneficial way. And they work directly with schools and they, and especially with schools in underdeveloped rural areas where students who get access to science, that that's, um, as you mentioned before, it opens so many doors for them to help their own communities. And at these science fairs, you'll see many, many students who are from disadvantaged backgrounds and they're using science as this tool to, to make their lives more positive. And just look, just knowing that ESCOM Expo made that possible and that I'm there to witness it, it's really a surreal experience. When you think about all the, when you put in everything, you know, it, it, it's science, it's never an isolated topic. It always, always is, is mingling with other, other aspects of life. That is 100% true. And what you presented to the audience is a fine, authentic advertisement for the expo. <laughs> and to increase that level even more, you did not only go to ISAP, but you also had the opportunity to participate at the Stockholm International Youth Science Seminar, or AKA Science, and the Nobel Week. So what were some of your highlight real moments of Science 2018 and the Nobel Prize ceremony? So I think every, every single thing from the Nobel Prize ceremony was just absolutely incredible. The way that it was done, the recognition we were giving to these laureates, it was, again, it was a surreal experience. Sometimes I sit down and I think, did I really do that? Did I really go there? Was that a dream? Because it, it, it's very, you know, it, it just feels like a dream to have got to have gone there. But I think what I what I feel more tangible with or what I really remember day to day is is the people that I met, all of the young scientists, and there were only about 25 of us who came to attend the seminar through SICE and just going one on one to them, learning about different cultures. Um, 
that was, I think, the top thing of the top high highlight reel. And another one would be on one of the days we were sort of having an indoor day. We had that gingerbread building competition, the gingerbread house building competition. <laughs> I don't know why, but that was like the best because we were just finished with all of the heavy, you know, science stuff and, and conversations and debates about ethics and just doing that while it was snowing outside and they were hanging up the Christmas lights. That was such a nice moment. It was really like, a, yeah, that was a great moment. Wait, was it when we were a group? We were in the same group, and I think we we named it was me, you, and um, Ale yeah, another individual, and then we named it like the princess group or something, just just for inclusivity, you know, just <laughs> a little bit of background. Uh -huh. Um, I think we didn't only name it princess, but also Snow White, right? Was it Snow White? Yeah, we did. So that was that was like a that was like a a fun a fun a fun moment a really fun moment that I had. There were so many, but just being indoors and being like competitively building this these these gingerbread houses with the other teams, and you know you know that they're gonna vote at the end and all of that. That was really fun. Um, of course, another deep thing that I really gained from that to my highlight reel is getting to actually attend the Nobel Prize lectures and then meet the Nobel laureates one on one. And, and get to ask them questions. I remember specifically speaking to Dr. Allison and um, Dr. Honjo, who that year uh, shared the prize in physiology and medicine. And I asked them how they dealt with failure and rejection as, science, as scientists. And they really enlightened me with regards to that. So all of those experiences, some, some really great ones, and then the fun ones, it was just a variety of fantastic things that happened. That's what I would say is, is, is the highlights of, of size for me. Yes, it was definitely a highlight when we were mingling around in the Nordic Museum, trying to figure out how to talk to those amazing people. And I think one of the greatest realizations was just their humility, how communicative they were with 20-year-old students fangirling them all around. Yeah, we, we were very nervous. I remember we had to like nominate um, you, I think. You were like our speaker for the whole group. <laughs> And then you had to like you. I remember you introduced. We were like quiet, you know. We we went from being very talkative outside about everything and excited, and then we all get in there, and we're just dead silent because we're nervous. And then you you sort of like introduced everyone, and then you helped told us to give introductions, which country we're from, and uh, it was it was such a great experience. That was really funny as well. <laughs> um, that's really interesting that you said that because I don't remember it that way. I was just <laughs> as nervous. But I wish to amp up my nervousness with a spirit of talkativeness and a sense of urgency because <laughs> I knew yeah. it was once in a lifetime opportunity when to act if not now. And I also remember Maika, she was so helpful. Mm -hmm. I was excited to meet Dr. Hanju, who you also mentioned. Mm -hmm. And I learned a Japanese mm -hmm. expression that I still remember till this day. And I still quote Dr. Hanju because he expanded on the role of women in science and how he supports women entering into STEM in Japan in his home country. So that's really something that stuck with me till this day. Yeah, yeah. Just talking to them about the it, it goes back to what you were saying about the humanity of these incredible individuals and what they've done and how how it links to the more social aspects of our lives. You know, that was that was incredible. I think. Yes, yeah. and the karaoke, the after party. We we shouldn't miss that part. <laughs> um, I guess I, def I definitely remember most of the after party. I definitely do. Um, if people can catch my trip, it was it was really fun. Yeah, the karaoke, the just the letting off steam at the end um, of the day, and like the note they were there as well. So that was really weird experience. Just seeing everybody partying around them, and they're just sitting there and just chilling. It was nice. Yes, I think someone even photobombed mm -hmm. with a Nobel Prize laureate in the party scene, which was incredible. Yeah. Talking about the Nobel Prize, it was a magnificent moment, a very magical moment in Stockholm's wintertime. But this year, the Nobel Prize in Medicine was awarded for the discovery of the CRISPR-Cas9 technology to Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna, who discovered these genetic scissors that are truly revolutionary. I would like to hear your take on it because sometimes synthetic biology can be a gray area subject. So I would phrase my question this way. What do you think? 
what is the best and worst case scenario you can think of using this cutting edge invention because I'm mentioning the worst case scenario so we can you know prevent it in the future firstly i think i think that it's just incredible that we're both we both are students at this time right in in our lives where this stuff like this is just coming out of discovery and being recognized for, for the groundbreaking breaking nature of them and that we can be directly immersed in them one example would be talking about them like this that's that in of itself it's such a great opportunity to talk about CRISPR-Cas systems i remember in high school when it was first introduced into our textbook, it was like half a page long. And then I got to university just a few years later and it like two chapters were dedicated to it. And of course, entire textbooks are being written about it now. Um, with all that aside though, when looking at a worst case scenario, I'm really reminded of how legislation is always slower than innovation. So we will never fully have it on paper um the the ethical thing sorted out and the law sorted out before something is invented or discovered but when i think about a worst case scenario i think about something very specific which would be making changes to the gene drive or we can think of it like an encyclopedia encyclopedia of genes in organisms and so this would be genes which are manipulated in one type of organism let's just say prokaryotic bacteria and then those are trans, um, transferred to other unsuspecting organisms and the environment as well. So we might think we know what we're doing now, today, when we do it, and then even in the short term. And we might think that we're measuring exactly what changes we're doing to the genes. But since this is a new technology, there's a possibility that we've missed something in our research or uh, we miss, we're missing a measurement tool that cannot detect certain changes that we have made. And then the worry after that is, do those changes contribute to perhaps a phenomenon like antibiotic resistance and other mutations that possibly spill over into different types of populations? And then at that point, they would be very difficult to control. Then we would have a situation, which I'm sure everybody's um, well aware of how that would go, where we have a novel disease, perhaps, and then we don't have any prophylactic treatment. We don't have any idea how to how to um, approach this disease that we've indirectly sort of directly made because of because we weren't using this technology properly um, that's what i can think of in a worst case scenario and then for a prevention for that the work that we do at synthetics is, is a good start and i think it's a good public resource looking at the ethical considerations above everything else and before everything else and and how these new technologies impact the natural world so we just need to be prepared for how this will change the natural world and to what extent and to what degree because these technologies do not exist in isolation unless they only exist in the lab and when people are getting more comfortable with it and more confident with it it will be used in in public settings in the environment in places with high population densities of many different organisms so we can prevent it by studying the risks and the and, and all of that associated with them when i think about a best case scenario i think a lot of people would initially just go to um the the design of babies and the genetic the, the genetic engineering and i would also go there initially but we've had gene editing technologies before that have sort of been very much researched and pioneered in those aspects. Um, and CRISPR is going to be contributing to that. But I think I, I'm just gonna take a hands-off approach and, and look more to the environment and to something that we really need to consider very seriously, um, which is tackle things like climate change, which affects everyone and every ecosystem. And if and to use that as a specific example, how would we change, how would we um, battle climate change? Uh, using CRISPR-Cas9 systems, we would use that to possibly confer resistance into different trees, into different um, herbaceous species in the rainforest or in agriculture, and then we would confer onto them resistance to um, sort of the, the, the symptoms of climate change, which would be the increasing temperature and humidity amongst a host of other things. And then secondary to that, we can use CRISPR-Cas systems to make these um, organisms better at being carbon sink so they are more able to sequester carbon from the in, from the atmosphere um, thus decreasing the amount of greenhouse gases so we can really have a direct impact in fighting 
climate change using this kind of technology. And then over time, the greenhouse gases decrease, and then we're just in a better position to, to prepare long-term and currently for climate change. I think that's very optimistic and naive, but um, albeit a uh, best case scenario I can think of for using CRISPR. Those uncalculated results could cause unexpected surprises, so it's better to be prepared than be shocked in such situations. I also like that you mentioned the work of synthetics, which you are involved in as an ambassador of South Africa, and you're also organizing your national team. It's kind of an inception story because synthetics had its roots in Sweden, where Eric and their team started as a side project during the iGym competition, but then it grew out to be bigger. And I'm so glad that as a co-founder, I can say that you contribute to its involvement in many different ways. You are very open to expand on subjects that are a bit difficult, like biohacking or about the legislative side. Thank you. Thank you for mentioning that. And yes, for targeting one of the most urging and crucial problems, this technology could be revolutionary. And it's also going to be very challenging to determine the rights of an organism when we're looking at these chimeras or new organisms, new ways of life. That was actually something that was very interesting to me when I enrolled at Harvard Law School's course on the science and ethics of reproductive technologies and genetics. So it's going to be a sticky subject, but it's so great that you are involved in that while also doing research work so that you could present authentic information to the public. One of the most important is get these messages across before um, allowing people form solely surface level media inspired thoughts. And when we think about best case scenarios, we also have to take into account the legislative side. And there are a lot of interesting projects in the iGEM world. I know that you've cooperated with and worked together with iGEM teams. How can you do a synthetical evaluation for the listeners out there who are not really familiar with this topic? How can we ensure that research goes into the right direction from this more objective and practical side? Uh, that's a good question. So when, when, approaching, when approaching that side of any research project or even when um, researching other topics that have profound Im uh, implications, you really need to start with the ethical outline. You, you can't possibly um, conceive of it towards the middle of the project and the end of the project. And the reason for that is your ethical considerations, as well as the, the legal side of it, the legislator, the regulations in that specific country or that specific region, that will inform all of the other decisions you make for, for the sign for, the, for your project. And a lot of people make this mistake of only considering those aspects, the ethics and law, towards the middle or the end of their projects, and then they realize their projects aren't actually viable because they're too risky or they're illegal or they could be considered illicit even though it's a good project. Um, another thing to consider is you you sort of need to do the, the groundwork, what I call the field work of ethics. You really need to go and look at other cases of where ethics were challenged. You need to understand in a very, in a very, uh, philosophical way why we do ethics analysis. And you need to understand that it's not necessarily a scientific debate most of the time. It's a, it's a philosophical debate. It's about morals. It's about uh, a moral code, ethics. How is this going to affect people? How is this going to affect the environment? And another thing you need to consider when doing um, your ethics um, report for a project is you need to think about long-term implications. You should already be doing this, even if you don't have an ethics report, how does your invention or ideas impact the long-term? But with regards to ethic analysis, look at the current problems you're facing. Are you going to be contributing to them? Are you going to be affecting them in some sort of way? Are you going to be creating another issue which you think we may solve in the future? but um, it's actually you know, not, not really within our grasp now. And it's all about the risk analysis, the, the safety analysis. And yeah, I, I would say that in a, very, in a very crude way that I explained, that's sort of how you can go about thinking about how to write up an ethics report for your, for, for your research. 
I really like how you've highlighted these different aspects, which we would not naturally think about, such as the philosophical aspect of it, because with philosophy, we might think about ancient Greeks sitting on the beach, writing <laughs> poems, coming up with theorems and mathematics, having a great time while chewing on olives, but it's so much more than that. When we think about ethical evaluation, it has roots in the Greek or Roman culture in terms of virtue ethics, the Judeo-Christian worldview with the sanctity of human life. And then it took a 180-degree turn when it came to the French Revolution, then followed up by Nietzsche's rational egoism. Those different principles can still be applied today. And now we are at this postmodern era, so I think one of the points we really have to consider is that, of course, we can have our own perspectives, but truth should be more objective because that is going to propel these legislative decisions we are making. Our own truths, our own preconceived notions, our own perspectives will not help that much if we don't have kind of a middle route that we can follow so that science can actually progress and develop. Yes, absolutely. I like that you mentioned that last part because you, I think with another piece of advice I can give when looking at sort of previous ethics laws, looking at ethics um, books and requirements and all of that, just learning about ethics of science and philosophy, you need to, you need to learn to let go of certain preconceived notions. You need to learn to accept that your truth is different, as you mentioned. I like that you put it in those words, because when I was doing, when I was working with one of the IGM teams as sort of a research consultant, they presented a lot of very interesting cases to me, and I came back with them with equally as interesting questions, but it took me a while to get to those questions with regards to the ethics, because again, you can't be biased when you think about ethics. You have to look at it from an objective view. And so you might do it subconsciously where you just apply your own truths to how you're going to think about ethics, but you really, really need to look at the history of ethics. And it's not that you need to have a, a, a degree in ethics and philosophy to, to engage with these topics, but you definitely do need to explore them further. Absolutely. And it takes self-discipline and self-control because when it comes to expanding on your own truths, which you can do in a well-mannered way, it can sometimes be packed with emotional reasoning, which really doesn't help either your or the other party's situation. And you can apply that rule of thumb in a business meeting or even in your interpersonal relationships, which can really elevate the quality of your communication with other people. We're still in the pandemic, but you've been involved in the fight against COVID-19. What has been the season of your life like? How did you cope with it? From even before it was declared a pandemic, we knew that it was coming to South Africa. So we, the government took these, the government and the health departments and science and technology departments, we took those preventative measures um, to, to deal with COVID. And it, I, I think it would have been so much worse if we hadn't before it was um, declared a pandemic. And... For me personally, I always, I initially, I was just very stationary. I said, okay, if I if I follow all the rules, wear my mask and all of that, I'm very, I'm contributing. But I that wasn't enough for me. I needed to do more. I needed to be active, um, and I really had to challenge a lot of the fears I had associated with COVID um, and the virus and the novel nature of it. So. Um, it started with just donations of PPE. It started with uh, gathering up supplies for other people who needed them in our community. And with this, um, I started working with the private ambulance service my parents own. And we've been showcasing these workplace seminars where we teach people about the virus itself from a very from a virology standpoint. Um, but we do it in a very easily accessible way. We, we, we mention things that they can understand and then we teach them new concepts and they can of course apply that to any other sort of virus um, and then just how they should adjust their daily and business practices accordingly and these seminars were mainly aimed for people at businesses because because my parents work with a lot of different businesses and they came to them for guidance and they asked my help because I guess I'm a science student and I'm in, involved with microbiology and we were interpreting the laws and legislation together and then using the latest science available we really came up with the best preventative measures and when it comes to 
um, COVID preparedness and COVID workplace training, you can never put a broad stroke um, and give that to anyone. You really have to meet one-on-one -on -one with these companies to understand their individual needs, the needs of their uh, employee base, employer base as well. Um, and just look what type of people are, who's at risk. Um, so a lot of different things. And, and while I was doing this, I used a lot of the knowledge I learned from synthetics to look at things in an, in an, in an objective way, to look at other sources of information, to validate information. Because when you're giving advice on COVID and you haven't done the research firsthand, you really need to use reputable sources. And all of that was just reiterated when I worked with uh, synthetics and I was able to hopefully make a, a difference in that way where we were doing this preparedness and we um, put that hand in hand with teaching people how to use PPE. And I really hope that that um, helped the situation in my region with the pandemic. How awesome. You equip them with the essential info they need, like preparing a warrior, going to fight mode. You're doing the good work. And yes, yes. sometimes misleading information can be found just crawling mm -hmm. down on your feed but you are feeding people with a different quality information in a verified and trustworthy sense. Um, what was very interesting during these, these things, people, some people have never heard of, of, not they, of course, people have heard about viruses before, but a lot of them have never like experienced it to this degree where you have where perhaps the um, mainstream news is bombarding them with a lot of scientific information that they wouldn't have known um, previously and it was just very interesting talking about the preconceived notions of the virus like can antibiotics treat covid no it cannot treat covid but we do use it to treat opportunistic infections so a lot of what i found interesting was a lot of what they brought to me wasn't necessarily completely wrong. They had slivers of truth within them, but it was just um, misleading information. So yeah, I think the population in general was equipped enough, but they just needed a little bit of additional help getting there to getting to that final point. Yes, I like the clarification. You increase the resolution of their knowledge. And what are you up to in this season of your life? What is next to come? So currently I just finished up with my second year of this degree um, i'm doing a bachelor of microbiology and genetics and online learning was a little bit of a uh, uphill battle but i got through it at the end throughout this year and i'm just currently in a three-month holiday so i go back in march next year or in in 2021 and i'm just using this break to sort of reflect on the previous year reflect on what my role is in science and i think during this pandemic everyone sort of looking at their role in life, but I'm looking at, yeah, I'm just looking at it more in, in a very practical way because the pandemic very much relates to me on a personal level. Like I could, if, if I had a little bit more experience, could I be doing more? And that, that's just fueling me to, to study more. So I'm on break right now, but when I'm, when I'm going back to university, um, I'm completing my undergraduate degree in 2021 and then hopefully applying for honors. And while I'm busy with all of that, um, I'm working with synthetics and um, with, the, with the South African team under synthetics, we, we have a lot of different plans to showcase in 2021, and I'm hoping that we can showcase them and welcome them deeper. Um, I'm also still working with the ESCOM Expo. I work with them every year as a volunteer judge, um, also just as a groundwork volunteer where I can. I couldn't this year, of course, because of COVID, but um, I did help them with some online stuff. And then also another, another member of um, Synthetics, she um, has started an independent, it's Alice, I think it's Alice, who um, has also started up STEMAG, which I'm also a part of, and that's all about the discussions of the intersectionality of, of science and arts, and I learned so much about that from, a, from the humanities mixing with science, and that was really great to, that's really great to know that I'm going to be a part of that in 2021, and I also co-host a podcast with a good friend of mine, um, Asandi Bilani, and we talk about topics relating to politics and relationships. It's just the dialogue of anything that's on our minds. And then finally, I'm really hoping to travel in 2021. I really hope the circumstances are good for traveling, possibly to the Dubai World Expo at the end of the year, because I'm hearing that the scientific developments that they're going to bring to the Dubai World Expo for the first time are going to be absolutely legendary, and I'm really excited for that. How amazing. You have such cool plans planned ahead for 2020, and we hope it's going to be a much better year. Mm -hmm. 
And yes, this podcasting environment is not unfamiliar to you, and I think the listeners can sense that as well. And another add-on, since you mentioned Alice, STEMAC has done such incredible work in infusing art with science and putting out such valuable articles to have expand the horizons of your thinking patterns when it comes to such delicate subjects. I'm really glad that you're part of it. Also, another inception detail is that STEMAC is organizing a competition in which Synthetics is giving out a prize and also the Drop the STEM podcast. Just yes. a bit of plug there. So if anyone wants to... <laughs> no, plug away, plug away. It's, it's, it's an imp- I think it's a really important project that, that anybody would be, anyone who's listening would definitely be interested in. Yes, and it's also international. Borders do not matter in that sense. You can apply with a variety of projects, whether it's on the written or more sensory creative side. So I think it's really a plug or advertisement worthy of mentioning on the pod. And and the winner, just to reiterate, you get to be on this this podcast that we're on right now. If you're listening, I definitely think you'd absolutely enjoy Blanca is a fantastic host, host, I think everyone can tell. Um, so yeah, you, you also win, to, you also win uh, a guest starring on this podcast, which I think is absolutely incredible just by itself. But yeah, you get a lot of different things as well. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it, Rahil. We are moving into the if questions department in which we're going to explore some hypothetical scenarios, but not mm-hmm. fully irrealistic. The first one is going to be, as a sort of legislation, so kind of having omnipotent power, if you had the possibility, what would you change about our society and why would you do that? So this is, a, I think this is the most difficult question you've ever asked me because of the far-reaching implications of it. And um, I think, so I'm going to answer from a very general, perhaps vague lens, because I don't know the worked out specifics. And I might, this answer might change depending on maybe I'm being too naive and need to, you know, know more about how the world works. But in just a very general way, I would tackle inequality first, I believe. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, Blanca, but in South Africa, we're considered one of the most, if not the most, unequal country in terms of wealth distribution. So it's, it's either all on one side or all to the other side. And that's a huge issue. And that relates to socioeconomic things, it affects the economy, it affects purchasing power of the individuals. And that sort of that type of inequality is what I probably want to tackle first, allowing individuals to have funds available, and for them to live high quality lives and explore and really give back to the to the country. And it would have this exponential effect of everybody having funds available to explore different things, you have more minds in the pot, you have more ideas to, to think about, and just then that, that of course extends to the whole world as well. Um, that's one thing I would change about our society now. I just think it's a very urgent and prevalent issue. And it, regardless of which stage you are, which financial tier you fall into, you definitely see the income um, um, disparity in South Africa. If you ever come here, if you live here, um, you see that. So that's something I would change. I wasn't totally aware of that, so it's really great that you brought up the topic of inequality. And as you've expanded on the current situation, would you say that the notion of UBI or universal basic income that is mentioned in the sphere of American politics could be applied in that legislative action of yours? (laughs) Meaning the lower classes would have this starting ground? Um, this jump-starting situation to begin with and to build up their lives with that given amount of money? This is a topic that South Africans are constantly, constantly talking about. If they don't mention universal basic income, they describe something that's basically the same thing. So if we, a lot of people make this mistake living in South Africa and trying to apply what we, okay, we consider the USA to be very, very, successful in terms of economy, in terms of how they deal with issues. Um, Even though they have a lot of their own issues, we consider them um, as an allied country, they're good at all of that. So when people think about these issues from the public in South Africa, they think about what's happening in the US. And of course, everyone's aware of the presidential elections and all of that. And when they brought up the universal basic income, which is a, a liberal talking point, a lot of people in South Africa sort of just 
copy paste that into our situation. The thing is, it's, it's a little bit more nuanced than that, because when we talk about universal basic income, we need to consider the current population existing. So the population in South Africa is very vastly different to the type of population in North America. So we can't just apply the same thing when it comes to universal basic income. We have systems currently in place um, in the form of grants and unemployment and all of that. And I wouldn't go to say just increase all of that. I think I, I don't think there's a system. In, I think we need to look at that deeper. I don't think that there's anything that we have at that scale of universal basic income. And then we have the questions of corruption and who's going to pay for it. And then what's going to happen down the line? Who can we trust to be appointed with it? Those are the questions we sort of ask first before going into, okay, can we actually apply something? Um, but I would say that I support the concept. If yeah, if we're just talking about it from a political view, I definitely support the concept. You just need to create the environment yeah. necessary to accept it in mm -hmm. the future. Absolutely. I see. The next one is a bit imaginary. If you could choose to have dinner with anyone living today or in the past, so we can do a little bit of time travel, who would you invite and why to your dinner party? So when I've been asked this before, I always used to think about like founders of scientific principles that I'm currently studying. Um, you know, Edward Jenner, maybe like father of microbiology and whatnot. And as much as I'd like to have dinner with them, I think I, I think I should maybe perhaps use the imaginary opportunity to to you um, to see someone a little bit closer to home. And this might be a cliche answer for a South African, but I definitely have dinner with Nelson Mandela. Um, he passed in 2013. He was the first democratically elected black president of the, the, of the country in 1994. And he also won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1993 with, I believe, F.W. de Klerk. And they won that because of their work with the peaceful termination of the whole apartheid regime. And they really laid the foundation a democratic South Africa and I would have dinner with him and I would just say thank you just a really simple thank you because the work that he did with the Glad had had done had done so much to bridge the gross inequality and segregation during the apartheid regime and they were exceptionally brave to do so um he he obviously of course spent many years in prison for his decisions and when he got out he changed the idea of what a democracy can be and the whole concept of you have to fight for freedom. And he serves as a reminder to me how important it is to really step, take a step back and see how much individual power we have in other people. And in his case, he, he impacted the entire world. And I'm hoping not necessarily to fill his shoes, but to do the same thing that he did, going through this sort of hardship and realizing, okay, this is for a greater purpose. And I don't even think I'd be here today talking to you at this point in time um, with this privilege of talking to you and sharing ideas had it not been for what he had done um, 20 so years ago. And I really take that for granted too often. And I think people of color in this country who are a little bit more privileged, financially speaking, uh, also take the things like that for granted. But uh, yeah, that's, that's who I would meet and why. <laughs> What an amazing dinner guest of your choice. He really was a real leader in that sense that he was sacrificial for his country, for his people, provided inspiration, advocated for education, which you also do. So I think you would yes. have had a lot of talking points. We are moving into the this or that game section. So you can choose either or. Would you travel to Europe or Asia? I would travel to Asia. In all my journeys with my with, with with vacations that I take by myself or with my family and with regards to science, I'm always, always going to the west, to the west or to the north, and very rarely exploring the the east. So that's the reason I would choose to go to Asia. I think the next trip would be Middle East, Southeast Asia, just the whole west of just the whole east of the world. That would be yeah, I, I'm just not there very often or at all. Yeah, it's in a pandemic free world. Yes. <laughs> The next one is early bird or night owl? Night owl. I probably I didn't sleep before this podcast preparation. I just could. I was just too excited, so I just didn't sleep. So I was up the entire night, and then I'll probably go to sleep like very early in the in the evening. 
and then wake up again in the middle of the night. Oh, okay. So you have these transitional sleep periods. Yeah, I do. And you you perfect way to describe it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'd say I'm diurnal at this point, just awake during the day. My family really only sees me at the evening. <laughs> Um, recently, it's only this year. Don't don't think the list don't the listeners shouldn't think I'm like this all the time. Just this year, I guess with online learning and everything, all the freedom that we've had, I I very much prefer to be up during the night when absolutely it's so quiet. Um, yeah. Yes, I can understand that, and I think since we are exposed to so much blue light, but. If you use reduction on your phone, good for you. It could, you know, it could be that I have all the blue, I have the orange filter and everything, but it, it it could be screen time as well, definitely. Yes, beach or mountain. Ooh, you see, for both of these, you'd have to be an outdoorsy person, right? So I'm already having trouble. No, I'm joking. Um, I think perhaps perhaps mountain. I think beaches as ver as as um various as they can be are sort of just one defined thing. Um, perhaps mountain, yeah, mountain, just, just for the variety, just for the challenge, I guess, associated with that. Because if I'm going to be outside doing things, um, I think there should be a challenge associated with it. I wouldn't like relax on a beach, although that would be preferred. Because you don't go into outdoorsy mode for no reason, right? Exactly, yeah, I'm like choosing outdoorsy mode. I can't just, you know, sit like what I'm going to do in the house anyway, just like sit around and relax. Yeah, definitely mountain. <laughs> Yeah, I get it. The next is ice cream or cake? I'd say ice cream. The reason being, I have to like often search out or like whenever I'm out, I get ice cream or like I'll choose to have ice cream. But for cake, it's like someone's always having a birthday or like an anniversary or a party. And that's like, okay, the cake's available. So yeah, ice cream's like a, re- a scarcer commodity. So yeah. Yes, cake can be more festive and associated with parties. I'm not entirely sure about your seasonal changes, but would you choose summer or winter? Winter, 110%. Like, always. Just always winter. It's just easier, I think. I really like when it's warm. And, like, during winter, I'll appreciate sometimes that we have great summer weather. But just, like, the vibes of winter, you can't beat it. Like, the whole aesthetic, the whole... The whole gloomy days and like being cold i just i just like the vibes associated with that you know more with like relaxation movies popcorn you know get warm and all of that and it's just a little bit more pleasant i think to get warm when you're cold than it is to cool off when you're hot but that could just be yeah. yes and a fuzzy and nuki mode the closing question that I ask from every guest on the podcast that just really summarizes and encapsulates all the wonderful things is what does science mean to you? So that's always a difficult question. I think um, science for me, it's not only been, I, I use science as sort of an escape sometimes from the real world to go and explore the real world. I know it's weird to say, um, but it can also just be an escape into the wonders and capabilities of the human mind. I, I know like when I'm having like just I'm having doubts about myself, I'm just not feeling great a particular week. I'll 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 read something in that has to do with science or an invention or hear a backstory from, from rags to riches and, and then that just makes me it instantly wow. That's just the, the science as a tool has so many has done so many great things for so many people. And it's been a constant presence in my life. I think it's really guiding me towards a lot of different things and a way of thinking. And without it, I really think that I'd just be blissfully ignorant. And then I wouldn't even know what blissfully ignorance um, meant. But uh, all in all, science really comes down for me to one thing. It comes down to a choice. Because when you leave the land of ignorance and you really open up to the idea of there are things beyond us that we need to still explore. And there are things that we know and do that are extremely powerful, you know, just like education, it's an extremely powerful tool. And that just means a choice. How are you going to use it? That's what science means to me. It's a choice to help people or hinder people. It's a choice to change the world or or, sculpt the world in a certain image. It's a choice of knowing when to stop and knowing when to keep going. And I often ask myself, if I wasn't a scientist, what or who would I be? And yeah, so science really means a lot to me. Just being a catalyst, increasing the activation energy. Absolutely, yes, exactly. Great analogy. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. 
And you mentioned you often ponder upon what you would have become in the place of being a scientist. So what kind of other profession would you imagine for yourself? What I imagine for myself, I, so I wasn't actually going to study, okay, I don't know if this counts. No, I was, I, I was initially going to study computer science, which is heavily analytical in really? that space. Yeah, I was going to study that before, before the 2017 expo where I got the bursary to, for my science, for my microbiology project. Um, and then I ended up choosing microbiology. And if I wasn't studying computer science or if I wasn't in STEM at all, then I'll be honest, I need to really go and, and, and explore different fields, like understanding what different fields entail. I think the closest thing I can answer to what I have experienced of is law. Um, simply because my dad's a lawyer, um, I have a brother and a sister who are studying law. Um, that would be something that I maybe naturally get into, even though I might struggle with it and it would be difficult. You can say that about everything. Yeah, I, I think perhaps a lawyer of some sort, if I wasn't studying science, because I think both are equally impacting fields. Absolutely. And advocating for a cause would still be involved yeah. in the case of law. But we know the magical power of science. <laughs> we do. It really is magic. I think compared to that, um, no offense, it really is like magical, like magical feeling. Um, having all these cool things to do. And it, it's just so out of this world sometimes. Like physically, it can be out of this world, um, which is great. Well, thank you, Rahil, for sharing your personal and scientific journey with the listeners and all the great tips that you also shared on the topics of education, synthetic biology, and COVID, very heated right now. So thank you for sharing all these valuable pieces of advice with the listeners. Thank you so much for the opportunity and for, more importantly, making the platform available for, for other people to listen. I'm really, really so glad that I am a part of this archive of just incredible, incredible guests with an equally incredible host. Thank you so much. I just, I, I can, can't say thank you enough. I'm just so grateful for the opportunity. Absolutely. So, yeah. Absolutely. You dropped the stem and officially part of the gang now. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed today's episode. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, and more. If you want to show your support, and be updated on all the news, make sure to hit that subscribe button, leave a review, which would ultimately help the algorithm to bring the message to even more people and inspire many. Follow the pod on Instagram and Facebook as well. As always, thank you for taking a few moments of science with us and stay tuned for the next episode.